Offside with Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from a beach in New Jersey and in an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. What's up, brother? Well, uh, you join us mid pummeling. Uh, for those of you who did not enjoy the last podcast, which was full of Liverpool joy, this will be much more your speed. Um, Manchester City 4, Liverpool nil, 66 minutes gone. We decided we record now. There's not, not a lot to say about this one, Andrew. No, even if it were a close game, there wouldn't really be a whole lot to say about it. Its value is is essentially zero. It doesn't really matter for anything other than just kind of a fun game to watch because there's a lot of great players taking part in it. It, it, it is funny, though, seeing the, the scoreline right now, 4-0. What is it, JJ? My TV's cut off. It's like the 67th minute or something. Um, 66th minute, yeah. Okay. Uh, like Lee Dixon made reference right before the game about how uh, after they won the league, uh, they went – where was it they went next that he said? I, I don't remember, but he said they, they, they went – They went to got, Aston Villa, I think. All right, and they got their guard of honor, and then they were beaten soundly. I think he said it was 4-0 for them too, their defeat. Um, oh, excuse me. Like, it was actually it was actually Liverpool. Okay, so like the symmetry of him making that comment before the match, and then it kind of playing out in front of us. Like it's natural. I mean, Manchester City right now probably, even though they're not playing for anything, probably feels some sort of chip on their shoulder. Whether it's you know we want to keep our records intact, or whether it's we're not going to let these guys come in here and think that they're better than us, even though they just won a title. You know, they're probably playing angry today, and Liverpool are playing. You know, we said they would that the records meant something to them, but this is the first game after they broke this curse. They lifted their this trophy. I mean, you can't help but imagine that like they've let their guard down a little bit. We'll see I, how I, they respond. All the records are still within sight, so I, I really don't take this to mean all, a whole lot of of anything from a Liverpool perspective. No, but I, I would say this: in in fairness to City, City have not missed a beat. They since they've come out of the the lockdown, they look revitalized. In fact. Um, they've moved the ball particularly well. Liverpool actually started very well. And Liverpool could have had a couple of goals tonight already. But the point being is a couple of mistakes, particularly Robertson, kind of uncharacteristic eagerness to try and win the ball back, getting out of position, particularly on the second goal uh, or the third goal, Foden's goal. Um, but City have been very, very good. That's the bottom line. And, um, and Liverpool are just a bit off it. And psychologically, look, that Arsenal team in the 90s, Andrew, they would have been on the beer. That's the facts. They would have been drinking all the way through. Liverpool, uh, from what we know, they had their night out um, that night and then they were back to work the next day. So they don't really have that excuse. But psychologically, um, oh, Lord. <laughs> Even as I speak, this could be this could be five. The, the point being is psychologically, it probably does take an edge off. And it's worth saying as well, you know, City can do this to to a lot of teams, pretty much anyone. And um, if Liverpool are just a percent off, you make one mistake, you go behind. Uh, the penalty I, I thought was soft, and once City got that, that a head of steam up, and and it swang swang towards uh, towards uh, Pep Guardiola's team. Look, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, Raheem Sterling's been unbelievable in this game so far. So is Kevin De Bruyne. Uh, yeah, and Liverpool have, Liverpool have been overrun in midfield. Uh, big style. Uh, Kate has come into the game. Oxley Chamberlain at halftime. Um, but I think if Mo Salah scores that 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 chance where he hits the post, maybe we're looking at a different kind of game. Look, uh, it's um, it's never nice to lose to City, but um, that's the way this one is heading. 
Yeah. Uh, look, you did your job in that you made sure that this game didn't matter. Uh, so props to Liverpool. How has this week been for you? Do you? You've been walking around like you're better than everyone, haven't you? I mean, you're like that under even even on your worst day, you act like you're better than everyone. So I can only imagine how it's been lately. No, I act like I'm better than you. And, and, and that is an incredibly low bar. Um, <laughs> No, uh, it, it's been great. I, the amount of um, Liverpool content I've been imbibing and reading and thinking about, it's, it's funny. I, I know I mentioned this piece already, Ollie Holt's piece in The Athletic, where he charts from 89-90 to now and what went wrong for Liverpool. And the things you you don't forget, but you kind of... You don't realize how low you got, Andrew. And I'm sure there was times with, with the Sixers and I'm sure there's been times with the Eagles and, with cer- and certainly with Tottenham where you've been pretty low and things have been pretty bad. We had two managers in the late 90s. The owner at the time uh, was the Moore family and David Moore liked Roy Evans so much that he couldn't sack him. He found it too hard to sack him so he gave Gerard Houllier a joint position alongside him until Evans moved on there's almost That's, something something sweet about that yeah but it was a family um albeit a very rich family it was a family owned club for for years decades and the <laughs> the idea that he couldn't bring himself to sack one of the managers and he just the, the the solution was to have two managers, like unbelievable. And and the players didn't know who to call boss. They didn't know who was the who was in charge for for long periods. Um, incredible. So yeah, it's been a kind of a journey for me reading all all the old stuff, uh, just enjoying this team, watching the goals from the season. Um, and and this is a little bit of a dampener in it. Oh yeah, but I mean minor, minor, very minor, truly, truly. Uh, we'll talk a lot about everything going on in the Premier League because a lot has been going on. Of course, Christian Pulisic with another, even in a losing effort, another performance worth discussing. Tottenham playing earlier today, and they have found a way to bring VAR back into the conversation. Before we get to much of that, though, JJ, there were two things I wanted to mention for you. First off, um, 10 years ago today, any idea? Ooh, uh, I, 10 years ago today? Yeah. Um... No. One of the most famous, I think it's emerged as one of the most famous World Cup moments of our lifetime. The Luis Suarez handball for Uruguay on the line against Ghana. That's today. It was this day 10 years ago, and I was on the BBC's website, and they have a profile up. And I'm just curious. I know we've talked about this before, I think, but I'm kind of curious sort of like once and for all where you stand on this. So uh, the BBC caught up with um, John Pantsall and Hans Sarpe, who were both on that Ghana team. And they asked the guys basically to reflect on that moment from the Ghana perspective. And I just want to read you a snippet here because I found it 10 years later to be just like, it tears at your heart. Um, here's how it starts. We were cheated, Pantsall says. To clear the ball from the line with your hand, it's supposed to be a goal. Pensal says, people still talk about the incident in Ghana. I can't forgive him because it was not an accident, Sarpe adds. He knows what he's done. We were crying, and you see someone who's cheated us is celebrating. How can I forgive him? Never, never, ever. I mean, the, the hurt and the hate and the vitriol is yes. still so fresh 
in the minds of these guys. And I'm so conflicted on it because they did get a penalty. They did get a penalty. And if any of us were in Suarez's shoes in that moment, I wonder would we have would the would the ethic would like the ethics of the moment have entered our mind enough where it would have caused us to do something differently? And and I don't know. You're look, you're staring down a historic moment in a World Cup and, and you kind of have your mind, especially someone like Suarez, whose mind is always single focused on must do this, must do this. If I'm going to win, I must do that. Like he's crazy out on the pitch. And you just think like in a World Cup, you kind of are going to do everything in your power to win. Like, are we to say that, like, has no, maybe it's unfair to say this, but like, has no Ghana player ever taken a dive in a match to try to win a penalty? Like, you know, you, you do things sometimes and you just expect the referees to manage the game. And, and they did. And Ghana were awarded a penalty and Asamoah Gion hit the crossbar and the rest is history. And it's just like, I understand why Ghana players would feel such visceral hate towards Suarez and towards that moment. I certainly do. But I just, look, I'll villainize Suarez for a lot of things, but I, don't, I just don't know if this is one of those moments that I, that I would really hate Suarez over. It, it's interesting the question you ask about does ethics enter your brain on the field? I mean, did ethics enter the brain of Thierry Henry when he just kind of instinctively tapped that ball to keep it in play with his hand against Ireland and, and to cross for William Gallus to score. I mean, does ethics come into it or are these just split-second reactions in a heightened state? I mean, human beings in athletic pursuits, particularly team pursuits, must be in such a, a high state, an unusual state of mind where, like you said, you're thinking about winning, about preserving oneself and, and, and the team. And I guess you don't, you don't consider these things. The only... That's not the only time. I'm sure there's loads of times. The thing that springs to mind was, do you remember Paolo Di Canio's moment of ethics and moment of morality where West Ham are playing Everton and West Ham would have been in a relegation battle at that point under Harry Redknapp and uh, Paul Gerrard, the Everton goalkeeper, comes running out of his goal, uh, injures himself badly, I think a knee injury, is stricken on the ground He's, uh, the goal is empty. The ball is crossed in towards the Canio. And instead of controlling it and volleying it home, or at least making an attempt to make a play on the goal, he catches the ball, waves his finger, no, 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 and points towards the stricken Gerrard outside the box. That happened. You know, that was a moment of... Now, I... Uh, <laughs> I, I cynically said, oh, he just missed, he missed time the flight of the ball. And right at the end, he said, I'm not going to be able to hit this properly, so I'll just catch it. <laughs> but but Decanio did that. You know, that was a moment where the morality or the the ethics or the the uh, the humanity, the Corinthian spirit over overtook him. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I don't think I think I think Suarez was was in a heightened state, as was Henri. These are reactions that are made. My problem, and it's interesting. Just, just to finish up on this, what the Ghanaian player said afterwards, it's the celebrating that seems to have got to him, right? Yes. That's what he mentions. Yeah. And what got to me about Henri afterwards was, as Richard Dunn lies crestfallen on the Parisian turf, like realizing his chance to go to a World Cup is probably over, is over for this time at least, and probably for the rest of his career, Henri comes over, drapes an arm around him and sits down beside him as if, Oh, it's terrible! You just went out of the World Cup. I wonder what went wrong. Right, you know, and, not 
yeah, that's kind of that that what that's what annoyed me afterwards. Right, and I totally get that. And I do feel like there's probably a way in which Suarez could have handled it. I'm not even talking about when he was caught celebrating uh, from the tunnel where he was watching, because that was that was kind of a genuine moment. Um, but afterwards, JJ, he was quoted as saying, "The hand of God now belongs to me," uh, referencing Diego Maradona's goal, obviously against England. Uh, I guess it's kind of like the spiking of the ball after this moment. Like maybe he could have handled it with a little more class and said, look, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, there's a way he could have apologized to Ghana, but still sort of explained himself and said, look, it's a world cup. You, I have to do everything I can to win. And in that moment, that was the only thing I could do to try to get my country to win. I'm sorry for the Ghana players. I feel bad, but I, I have to try to do anything I can. I think it's more of just like the, like, Nana, nana, boo, boo. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then also, before we get to the EPL, I wanted to tell you because I know this is always kind of a running theme on this show. So the U.S. men's national team uh, sent out a tweet. I think it was yesterday, celebrating the anniversary of 2014's World Cup, the the game of Tim Howard's life, and a losing effort when he had the 15 saves against Belgium. And JJ, sometimes I'll do this. I, we, we always say that Twitter can be a, a hateful, dangerous place to go down the rabbit hole. But I did click on the tweet because I was curious what some of the mentions were. You, oh, you went so, into the mentions. You so never went, go yeah. into the mentions. So, so I went into the mentions and JJ, it, it wasn't a tweet about anything except for Tim Howard's performance. And I'm going to read you the mentions now from start to until I decided to stop. I'm not skipping any. I'm not oh, skipping Christ. Any. Like I said, this is a this is a Tim Howard related tweet. The mentions begin with that Wando miss hurts to this day. Next oh. one. I'm sure he's a great guy, but that was horrendous. 32 teams in the tourney and 31 of them score on that ball. Just can't miss that at a World Cup. And then the next one. And then Chris Wondolowski happened. And now the next mention. Thanks Wando. Now the next mention. Damn you Wando. The next one. Landon doesn't miss that. And the next one, if Josie doesn't get hurt against Ghana, he doesn't miss that. It goes on and on. Every single one, JJ, was about Wando's miss. And I just feel like, because for years now, I've tried to kind of like lessen the blow for him. And I wonder if that battle is a futile one. If it's just one of those moments where the further we're removed from it, the more the focus of that entire World Cup run just hones in on that individual play and and there's nothing you can do to stop that from happening i I really feel like that's that's kind of where u.s soccer fan base is in terms of the 2014 world cup it's all about that and and i think you know wando himself with his you know fairly long career in mls has done his damnedest to be remembered for his goal scoring records in mls and certainly mls have done their damnedest to to push wando to the fore as one of the you know the the homegrown stars of the league. Oh, but look, um, this national team, we've seen it. MLS, uh, EPL, nothing drives interest or attention like the fit of our national team. It's incredible. And unfortunately, Wando's, Wando's chapter in that is, uh, is one incident. And um, yeah, there we are. Yeah, but but and- enough of this... And not no, just walk down Wando Lane and Louis Lane. We've got yeah. too much to talk about. Yeah, let's do a little bit of um, of EPL discussion right now. Like we said, Liverpool and Manchester City are, are playing as we speak. It's still 4-0. Um, 
So we won't even really address that too much. We kind of did at the top of this. Let's go to Tottenham now, JJ. They played earlier today. And um, there's uh, it's funny. There's a quote that I think about in a moment like this with where Spurs are and where it seems like they're headed. And the quote goes, I wish there was a way to know you were in the good old days before you actually left them. I think that's deep. You know who said that? It's, uh, it's Andy Bernard on The Office. Uh, really? Says that. Yeah, that's a deep quote, though. I, I, I always enjoy that because I do feel like as much as I loved, I mean, the giveaway here is that I believe Tottenham are exiting the good old days. <laughs> I think that that's mm. like becoming, I think that's becoming more and more apparent. And you know, as much as I loved every second of, the, of that Pochettino run all the way through the Champions League final, I do sometimes wish that like the frustration of that loss to Chelsea that gave Leicester a title or the loss to West Ham um, that gave Chelsea a title. Like I do wish that I didn't think so much about those and like the FA cup runs that ended prematurely, you know, you want to remember more of just like the Ajax days because, you know, those good old days don't last forever. And it, and it does feel like Tottenham are exiting them now. And before we even get to the VAR stuff, uh, I just want to look at, at other stuff with Spurs because I, I really, in watching that game, I, you can't help but wonder that even if that VAR decision went their way, sure. It changes the complexion of the game, but like, the flaws are still so apparent. And I asked you this question when we were texting, and I'll ask it again now. When I ask you about Tottenham, the mm-hmm. simple question that I'm going to ask you is just, so what are they good at? Uh, right now, they're, they're not good at, at any one thing in particular. Um, I've, I've broken it down into two issues, though, Andrew, because, again, you, you kind of have to make it manager-focused. So you would expect with a Mourinho team that defending would be their strong suit. But this, I saw this on Twitter from at uh, Statman Dave. Tottenham Hotspur have conceded 27 Premier League goals since Jose Mourinho became manager. The only teams to concede more in that period are Everton with 29, Norwich with 32, West Ham with 36, Bournemouth with 39, and Aston Villa with 40. Mm. I mean, that is not a group you want to be a part of. And, and you know, Mourinho, organization, tactically and defensively tough to break down. Not the case at Spurs. Okay, so what else are you getting from him? Let's look at the tactics. You'd expect a Mourinho side to be very well versed and briefed in what the opposition do. Well, Tottenham today, Andrew, were dreadful in picking up the runners. In this case, Sheffield United centre-backs. Basham, uh, I think it was the, was it the first goal, goal where Basham is the one that assists on it? You know, what do we know? What does any novice know about Sheffield United right now? Runners from deep, often your centre-backs. It was as if Tottenham had no clue. Again, he, he, he persists with playing, with playing Eric Dyer in a central defensive role in this team. And, and whatever, you know, uh, strong, strong qualities that Dyer has in coming out with the ball or maybe being on the ball in that position, he doesn't have them defensively. Andrew, he was just a statue on all those goals. I know. I know. Um, you know, and, and you look at the side, like right now it's Dyer and Davidson Sanchez that Mourinho feels like he wants to move forward with as a central defense pairing. And, and like the camera pans to the side and, and like there's Toby Alderweireld with just kind of like his head in his hand, just sitting there. And you're just like, where, why are you not playing? Where, please just like get on the field now. Yeah. I, I will say this about Tottenham. I don't want to be totally, um, I don't want to be too harsh here and act like that they're just a, a truly bad team, even though it, it appears no. that way at times. I, I'll say this. I actually do believe um, 
today notwithstanding, I believe they're good on the counterattack. But the problem is when you play a team like Sheffield United, they don't have, they're not really going to let you play on the counterattack. They're comfortable with allowing you to possess the ball because they're so compact defensively that they'll just let you pass it around. Tottenham in the final third today, it was a nightmare. I mean, until the very end when Sun played in the ball to Kane, like those two guys in particular were invisible. Although Kane, did, Kane JJ had a very weird thing today. He, uh, I think he completed the, the disallowed goal hat trick. I think he had three goals disallowed. Only one of them to VAR. The other two were obvious disallowed goals on offsides. But like, what a weird thing, you know. But like, right now in attack in the final third, there's just like, and this has been the case for a while with them. There's no, there's no final ball that breaks a team down. Like it just doesn't happen. It's pass around, pass around. Lamella comes on. He's dribbling head down into right. three men, losing possession. It's just, I don't. It just feels disorganized. It feels chaotic. Right. Um, it it feels like there's almost no plan. It feels as if there's no attention to detail in the attacking end in terms of phases of play, in terms of, uh, you know, patterns of play. But Andrew, look at the goal. How did the goal come about? Big, one. long ball lumped down the side. Kane competes for it. And Mora breaks on to the breaking ball. And that is a classic Mourinho at Spurs kind of at least what I've seen from them is that it will be a longer, more direct ball, a competition for that ball, a little bit of individual brilliance a la Mora and good finishing from Kane. It's not exactly a plan. Well, yes and no. I mean, you, you've been saying this for a while now. I don't, I don't hate that necessarily as being like, it's a departure from what we'll say 29, 20, 19 or 2018 or 2017 or 2016 Spurs do though you know play through the midfield uh good interchange of passing in around the box things like that I mean we're yeah, not I mean, look, really until, seeing that no we're not but like I also say you're kind of limited by what your personnel can do like okay if you want to say they should be playing the way that that Pochettino Spurs team was playing okay fine well where like where's Moussa Dembele Where's Christian Eriksen? Like the, those guys could do that for you. I don't see those guys on this team right now. Uh, so I still, they, I still think though. I mean, you, he has the option. Like he had a full, he had a full deck to pick from today. Um, he has the option of Indombele won't play him, won't play him, done with him. He did um, come off the sub, but yeah, I but you. I hear you. You know what I mean. Um, and I, like, I look at, I look at Son. He he appeared early on at least to be getting something out of Delhi Alley. That's not happening anymore. Right. Um, like I, I do look at that squad. I look at Burgoyne too as well. Um, I look at Kane up front. I look at Mora, and I think, uh, could somebody else get more out of this team? Could somebody else get get more passing, more fluidity? I definitely feel they could. Um, I've, I've got to tell you about well, this tweet. I got to yeah. tell you about this tweet first, Andrew, before we, before we go any further. I meant to send this to you because I can't stop laughing at it. You'll have noticed Eric Dyer's hair during that game today. It had a kind of a early Mohawk style feel to it. Um, somebody, uh, Zach B tweeted this to us. I don't know if Zach made it himself, but it's a side view of Eric Dyer's head today. And there's a graph drawn on it. And on the uh, y-axis is uh, on the x-axis is performance. On the y-axis is twenty nineteen to twenty twenty, and the curve of the mohawk going cresting down to the bottom of the axis is there, as if 
as if uh, showing a graph where where things are falling off the edge for Spurs. Yeah, that and is funny. I laughed heartily at that. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm a broken record on this, but I'll just repeat it again because you've kind of made Mourinho your target, and I understand why. But what I would just continue to say is they were getting the same performances under Mourinho for or under uh, Pochettino for the past year as well. So you say maybe a different manager could be getting more out of this team. Well, I mean, then I hope that that person can present themselves because Pochettino and Mourinho are yeah. widely regarded as two of the top managers in yeah, the but, world. But, but, and, they, but, and they couldn't out of this group. But there's a sharp, and again, because we got to move on, there's there's more to talk about in this game. Um, there's a sharp termism about appointing Mourinho. We know this now. He comes in, he wins trophies. What tro- I mean, surely that was Daniel Levy's idea with him to bring him in and kind of whip this squad into shape and, and, and win trophies. And my argument would have been a longer term approach. Okay, you've moved through the Pochettino phase. There's still young talent in this team. This is t- still a team that can uh, generate extraordinary revenues. This is still a team in a, in a good spot in the Premier League, just coming off the back of a Champions, their first Champions League final appearance. Why would you not go with a longer view? Why would you not maybe try and tempt Julian Nagelsmann to your club? Why would you not look at someone like that? A longer term appointment, something for the future. Um, right, and this- because, what, because what we're saying is, if we're sitting here having a hard time determining what it is they're good at, and we look at this roster and we see kind of, not that they're old, but it's an aging squad that's been together for a while that feels like it's reaching the end. If you can't determine what that team is good at, you know what that means? It means you're ending, entering a rebuild. And I don't know if anybody looks at Jose Mourinho as a guy who comes in to oversee a rebuilding process. So in that respect, you, you're you right. It, it's it's appropriate to question whether or not this manager is is the right choice. We'll find out. He'll have a, he'll have a transfer window to bring in some of his players, but... Tottenham are not that club that opens up the purse strings, and I don't know. I, I don't. I don't have a good feeling about the trajectory of the. Shall, guess, shall we I guess do? It is like Eric Dyer's haircut. But let's talk <laughs> quickly now about the VAR decision. And and, um, and and can I set down some rules here? We're not allowed to yell at each other. We're not allowed like to yell, and yeah. brevity shall be our watchword because this is tedious for me. I can I only imagine it's tedious for supporters too. And I hate this conversation, but we kind of have to do it. Um, here's what I will say about it. Um, the rule itself is an utter disaster. I'm not saying I know how to fix it, but I know that this ain't it. Like this rule of anything that touches a hand in the buildup to a goal uh, cannot then be a goal. I think the problem is from that perspective is that, you know, as fans, we kind of, we kind of crave consistency. And so if something wouldn't ordinarily be a handball, but then becomes one because a goal has scored, well, that feels inherently inconsistent to me. Either it is a handball or it isn't. I hate this rule. I hated it from the day that we first talked about it. I think it, it leaves itself open to tons of criticism. It's a, it's entirely, they try to make it a black and white issue, but in so doing, I feel like there's more gray than ever with it. Uh, I hate it. It has to change. I'm not just saying that because uh, because it came back to bite Tottenham today. We've, we have talked about this rule on this podcast many times. I think it's awful. And I think today figures it would be Tottenham that would push the rule to its absolute limit where Lucas Mora has been fouled, is on the ground, and kind of has the ball just incidentally touch his elbow and then get kicked off his back to Harry Kane who scores. But 
somehow that in itself is is a handball and a build up to a goal. I can't believe it. That has to be just like the the outermost limit of what this rule could possibly entail. It has to change. It was an embarrassment that that was ruled out today. Yeah, it was shocking. Um, today though, you know, today's incident, um, there is there is within that rule though, and that this is where VAR should be at least useful in this. And um, I'm reading from the Premier League website here. Uh, this is the IFAB. Uh, ruling on uh, there is look at the rule does not leave any leeway except in one area it is however considered natural for a player to put their arm between the their body and the ground for support when falling so long as the arm is not extended to make the body bigger so in this instance you could easily argue lucas moore is falling over he has no control and therefore the goal should be allowed but there's a common sense issue to this as well um you know, the rule the rule doesn't leave much wriggle room, but it, it was it was Jack Jack Pitt Brook that that tweeted this, and this is where I'm at. At some point, I wonder if officials, including VARs, should interpret the laws as they have always understood them, rather than as they are written down. Consistency in the implementation of these ridiculous laws is killing the game. Um. And and the other tweet he had that kind of made it interesting uh, for me was fans and officials should never lose sight of the fact that the rules are there to serve the game, not the other way around. If everyone who loves football thinks a decision is wrong, then it is wrong. The rules have to change to take into account how people feel. Clearly, in the case of both offside and handball, the interaction of the technology and the laws has ruined the game as we understand it. Now, my view is that if we have no VAR today, that's a goal. And we move on with our lives. And right. I said before, um, what's happening now is uh, a referee on the field is kind of, you know, a, a small mistake that he would have made. And this would have been a tiny error. No Sheffield United fan would have argued with this. And they really wouldn't have. No, and the right. No, no one pre- was arguing. That goal went in today, and no one said a word about it. it no, in the pre in the pre VAR era, no one is 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 calling this any grave injustice. And I think what's happening now is we're passing on the mistake to somebody in a box watching TV because it's still a human being who's slowing it down. And I think fundamentally, the what was wrong about uh, the introduction of VAR was, was this. And I'll finish on this point. We got this idea either through the media, and I blame Twitter for this. I blame the guy holding the camera up, the camera phone up to his his, his TV and, and pausing and, and screen grabbing and sending that out. What an injustice. It's a disgrace. We always get decisions against us. I'm blaming all those guys. There was this idea, Andrew, that there was like three, four decisions in every game that were terrible and wrong and football had to intervene and football had to do something about these grave injustices. And I wonder now with that we've, if, if perhaps in, in the way we apply VAR and in the way the VAR is interacting with the rules, if we've totally overcompensated for that false reality. Well, maybe that's true. The last thing that I would say on it is I get what you're saying. However, the reason I will not call for like an overall dismissal of VAR um, is because think about to- I'll keep it to Tottenham while we're talking about them. You know, two weeks ago they're playing Manchester United. It's one-one in a massive game between two teams that are contending for for a Champions League place. And what happens in the 86th minute? Bruno Fernandez goes down, penalties ruled, and then the first replay you see, he takes a dive. It's clear as day. Eric Dyer doesn't touch him. 
So in a pre-VAR world, that's given as a penalty. And I have a, I would, as a fan, I would have a harder time stomaching something that didn't happen and having to live with the result rather than something that actually did. Like if Manchester United get that penalty, it would be on a, on a dive, on a false play that not, should not have been worded a penalty. Like that to me, I can't, I can't sit with that. Like that, that will never jive with me as opposed to, I can be furious about a, a marginal offsides being ruled, but ultimately who am I mad at? Like, okay, maybe it was a millimeter, but he was offside, you know? So three minutes, Andrew, three minutes. I can, li- I can just live with that over something like a guy diving and getting away with it. And that being a difference between a winner or a loss. Also, I think that, you know, the whole idea, it, we're going to interview, intervene if the referees made an obvious error. How are any of these obvious errors? Like, you know, I mean, everything's well, reviewed. That That's what they have to go back and figure out. I feel like is, you know, I think that there is a middle ground between, you know, between the way VAR is being used and between, and quite frankly, kind of your position on it, which is abolish it. Like, I I do believe, like, why can't it just be like in the NFL where if they, you know, they can't tell if something happened or didn't happen. So the ruling on the field is what it is. I feel like there's this motivation when things go to VAR where they just are desperate to change it. Um, Where You know, they're going to look at it until they can find a reason to change it. And if you have to do that, then maybe you just shouldn't change the original call. I think more people could stomach it. If some of these, like you've always said, I give you credit for bringing this term to the forefront, this molecular level stuff. If that was just kind of weeded out, I think people would have an easier time stomaching some of it. And I hope that they can get back to doing that. I hope Uh, so too, because uh, I I find this conversation so dull. That's right. And that's why we're going to move on from it to what was probably the shock result of the week. West Ham, who have looked so putrid, uh, defeating Chelsea, who were riding high. And, you know, it, it's funny. We'll talk about this. But I feel like as the Liverpool-Man City uh, game has gone final, um, you know, I feel like the rest of this season is now kind of about determining who the next true contender will be for Liverpool. Like, will that still be Manchester City? I mean, today's performance was certainly their way of saying we're not going anywhere. However, we're going to have to see what the ruling is against them or if Mm. if it's upheld or overturned, that will impact things. Like Kevin De Bruyne said, if we receive a European ban, I don't know that I want to stay here. And there may be other guys that follow suit. It may be hard for them to keep their place uh, right there with Liverpool. So like, you know, we're going to talk about clubs like Manchester United and the momentum that they're getting. And Chelsea seemed like they were kind of throwing their hat in uh, their name into the, the hat as well with, the way they've been playing and with the signings of Werner and Ziyech. Um, but then like, then they do this and it's just like, and then you start kind of looking at, at them a, a little bit deeper. Like I, I saw this tweet from Miguel Delaney um, who said, Chelsea currently have uh, two points fewer than AVB and Di Matteo had at the same stage, nine fewer points than Sarri, as many defeats as the dismal 2015-16 team and their second worst defensive record in the Premier League era. Only the 96-97 Chelsea team was worse. So like you start to see that stuff and you're like, well, hmm, like how good are they? So they they are proving to be one of the more confusing teams of the season. I think in the context of what's benefited Frank Lampard and Chelsea has been the 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 up until recently the absolute flailing of Manchester United for up until January and February. March, United started to hit a bit of stride. But up until that, Chelsea could have bad results 
and keep everyone at bay because everyone was doing their own job, keeping themselves at bay. Look at Arsenal, look at Spurs. Yeah. You know, even Wolves who had a dodgy start, a dodgy enough start to the season with their European um, commitments. So, you know, suddenly as long as Lampard could stay in and around Leicester, it kind of looked like he was doing a good job, but you know, Roy Keane called this out months ago. He said, you know, how is it Lampard is, is getting away with losing all these games? You know, how, how is, how is Frank not to be challenged? I mean, he's had an incredibly easy ride from the British media. And that has definitely helped our perception of Chelsea having a, you know, this, this season that they've had. I mean, yeah. 10, lo- 10 losses. But I also think part of it is we've looked at certain elements of Chelsea and thought, ah, oh, this is reason for, for, you know, for hope. But what have we looked at? We've looked at N'Golo Kante being in that midfield. We've looked at Christian Pulisic emerging as the team's most important player, probably. We've looked at one of our favorite players to watch in the Champions League, Hakim Ziyech joining, and then the ambition of nicking Timo Werner from under the noses of Liverpool. What we haven't looked at is the fact that defensively, Andrew, they're not very good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's all pretty fair. And you saw some of those defensive shortcomings, like, you know, Rudiger making a key mistake that leads to a corner kick that probably never should have been. And, you know, for however good Cesar Azpilicueta usually is, he was a nightmare on set pieces and corner kicks um, in that match against West Ham yesterday. Yeah. Uh, I think the thing with Chelsea that ultimately is why I'm not going to move off my position, that I don't care what the stats say that Miguel Delaney has posted in that tweet. I'm not going to move off my position that this is ultimately a successful season for them. It's just because, like I always say, circumstances dictate expectations. This was a rebuilding year for Chelsea. A transfer ban, they lose their best player, a generational player, Aiden Hazard. You know, they decided to go with much with, with a youth team appearance at times. You know, Abraham, you know, Hudson Adoy, um, to, uh, Tamori. Like this was just not. This just wasn't a Chelsea team that you're accustomed to seeing. Uh, and I think, what was it that they said on the broadcast yesterday? Chelsea has occupied a top four spot for every week of the season except one. Like, who would have thought that coming into this year? So you're well, right. I said, like, I said they'd finish third. So, I mean, ultimately, like, the numbers aren't going to be pretty for this Chelsea side. But it was, in some ways, it was supposed to be worse. And so now, like, they'll be able, most likely, I, I think, they're going to get a Champions League spot. So, like, they'll... They'll have that beneath them if they want to go out and make more big name signings uh, in the transfer window. You know they'll be able to do that. Uh, so I, I don't know. I still I'm still of the belief that this was successful, and part of the reason that I think it's successful. So we talk about Hazard leaving, and when Pulisic came in, there was this idea, whether it was a false idea or not, the idea was thrown out there that this guy now on that price tag needs to be what Aiden Hazard has been, and we said. No one can be what Eden Hazard was. Uh, he was he, he he was out of this world good. He's one of the greatest Chelsea players that we've ever seen. Um, however, I think since this restart, Pulisic fully healthy, it just seems like he has found something and he is clicking in a way. Whether it's just form, confidence, uh, I don't know what it is, but he right now looks like he's the best player on that team. And well, I I think he's the most he's the most dynamic attacker that they have. Um, when when he gets on the ball in spaces, whether he gets on the ball out wide, there was a couple of moments against Leicester in the cup at the weekend, Andrew, 
where the minute he got the ball, you were like, what's going to happen? And he would drive at that Leicester defense. And what it does is it sucks in other defenders and then he'll lay it off. He's extremely good at giving the ball off at the right time as well. And and it leaves acres for the other players. He's just, he's their most dynamic attacker right now. Um, obviously, when he came off on the seven, in the 76th minute against Leicester at the King Power with a tight calf, I got extremely worried. Yeah. But, I mean, there was no need to be. He, he came back in against uh, West Ham United and he was very good. He's, it's, it's, it's at the point now, Andrew, where everything, not everything, but so much of what is good about Chelsea at the moment is going through him. And that that's a huge compliment to, to him and the way he's he's fit into this team. But again, I felt earlier in the season he was doing those things. Maybe he wasn't getting the reward, but I never felt bad about a performance he put in for Chelsea. I never felt maybe again, maybe Sheffield United at home was that was that one game I keep going back to where he was I felt maybe he was a bit too far wide. But he's inhabiting a I think a better position on the field now and he you know, slightly more infield, slightly more in the center, and he's damaging teams. He's he's been excellent. Um but I think, Andrew, we have to give our dues to David Moyes. That comment where he says where he said about uh well what I do is I win. And he had a 17% win percentage record over his last few seasons in the Premier League. Uh, he won yesterday. And we have to give West Ham United a lot of credit. He brought, he made the substitution to bring in Yarmolenko, who's been one of those West Ham players who've came into much fanfare and not produced very much, albeit injuries being a factor. He got it right. That was a really good goal to win the game. It was a really enjoyable performance for West Ham. A lot of battling qualities. I thought Miguel Antonio was was brilliant. I thought Declan Rice was was very good. And I thought West Ham, when they rolled up their sleeves for the fight, looked they put in a performance, Andrew, that we haven't seen from them lately. And it looks as if they might be doing enough to stay up. Yeah, for them to score three goals. It was the kind of game where, you know, I just don't expect them to score, I guess, ever. And so every every time Chelsea scored, I was just kind of like, oh, well, you can't expect West Ham to score again. You know, e- even after the initial disallowed goal, uh, when Antonio was ruled to be well, off. I the thought power. that was the game. Yeah. Especially like I, when, when Pulisic did that sharp turn on the edge of the box, uh, or in the box, not the edge, right in the box. And when that was a penalty, I was like, I may not watch the second half of this game because I didn't see a way back for West Ham. Right. You just kind of have no faith in them to be able to put anything together against any team, let alone a top four side like Chelsea. Um, so, yeah, credit to them. And Yarmolenko's goal was really well taken at the end. What a moment that was. That was really it was a terrific game. Honestly, um, I just uh, I just feel bad for Christian when he loses. But J- that's that's like the my weird personal conflict with this Chelsea side is that I, I just so badly want to dislike them. And I do dislike them. But with him there and then I was thinking about something else. And I wanted to ask you this question. Is there a player or just somebody in the sport that you can think of that you so you so badly want to hate, or sports hate, but you just can't, like you just find yourself liking him even though you, even though you just want to hate him? Yeah. Okay. I, I was thinking, I've got, I've got two, I think. All right. Like I should hate Gary Neville. Like if you look at Gary Neville as a, as a Manchester United man, just like even now, just defends the club to the hilt. He is the the epitome of that Fergie era. I remember when they when 
Liverpool won our last two one, I think, at Old Trafford, and he did the whole on front of the Liverpool away supporters pulling the jersey and kissing the badge. I should hate him, but I don't. I like his analysis. I like I like the way he talks about the game, and and one that came up recently, the newly installed manager at Middlesbrough, who he said he wouldn't take another job in the game. Neil Warnock, Andrew, like <laughs> Neil Warnock is not like me at all. He's an old school PFM. He is very much like even the things he said about Brexit, like I wouldn't his to hell with the rest of the world. That would not be my worldview at all. No, no, no. But still, when I hear him talk, I, I don't know. I, I can't help but like him. And if he's in an interview, I'm going to listen to him. And, and, uh, and I can't really say why that is. Um, the guy for me that made me even think of that question is Frank Lampard, who he was just kind of like the face of a generation of Chelsea that just tortured Spurs. You know, now he's Chelsea's manager, a team that Tottenham are chasing. But there's something about the guy that I just, I don't know, I just like the way he kind of the way he carries himself. I mean, even from his time at NYCFC, I know when you got to speak with him, um, I, don't know, it, I, find... I spoke to him. I spoke to him about three different on three different occasions, and he was an absolute gentleman. Yeah, and um, I loved the way he brushed aside. I asked for because obviously on the podcast, it's uh, you know you want good audio. You don't want I one on one is the way you want it. And this PR guy say, is trying to say we'll have a group session in the locker room with uh, David Villa, and that'll be that. And I just went straight straight over to Frank and I said, can, can I grab you for two minutes? And he said, of course. The PR guy tries to get between us and goes, no, no, no. And, and, and Frank Lampard just goes, no, it's, it's fine. Yeah. And, and he, he, did, he did three three or four minutes with me after getting battered by the Red Bulls um, at Red Bull Arena. And he always seemed open and, and, and gentlemanly. Um, his comments, though, in, in the last week have caused, I suppose, in a media that's very kind to him, have caused slight ripple effect where Raheem Sterling name-checked Gerrard and Frank Lampard as examples of managers that have got top jobs almost straight out of playing, whereas black managers haven't. And he he was just using them as examples, not to say that they're not worthy, but Frank Lampard kind of took exception to it and said that he, you know, he agreed with what Sterling was saying about privilege in the game of football. But he said that in his case, he did the classic thing. He said, but not in my case. You know, it was hard work in my case that got we got me where I am. And I, it was I had to stop and I thought, well, your dad was assistant to Harry Redknapp at West Ham when you made your debut coming through, right? <laughs> you got the job at Derby County on the recommendation of your uncle. You know, you got the interview, right, at Derby County, like right. The fact that he was in the position to get that job. Correct. Her place is, is an example of, of the privilege that 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 many white players enjoy, and I just thought, yeah, you know, maybe sometimes. I mean that that comment, I suppose, was the only real time I thought, mm, Frank, are we yeah. are we really thinking about our our own position here? And I suppose something we all have to do these days. That's um, a good, I actually had not seen that. Yeah, yeah. He he took exception. He kind of said that it was hard work was the reason he was where he was. But by the way, I would say no one is denying that Frank Lampard has worked hard. No, 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 no. Where he is. But the problem is that like how many how many black players are there out there who want to be managers that have also worked that hard? Who yes. just we don't have the opportunity. Like there 
I think that's the thing that sometimes is is hard for people within it to see. And also, you know, uh, Frank Lampard has holidayed on Roman Abramovich's yacht. That's a personal relationship that when it comes to, you know, being interviewed for the Chelsea role or whatever process Chelsea had, that is an advantage. These things are advantages and we need to look at them like that. Um, But anyway, that's an aside. Uh, let's see, Manchester United, JJ, this is starting to emerge as a, uh, I would say, almost a likely top four finisher. Um, I've been trying to think about what's behind some of their their recent success. and I've been thinking about a couple things, and I know Manchester United fans have kind of wanted to see this for a while now, and that is one thing being Mason Greenwood. Um, I, I know United fans have kind of, they would like to see him get a run of games in the starting 11. I saw ESPN FC tweeted this stat. After he scored, they said 18-year-old Mason Greenwood has scored the same amount of goals for Manchester United as Alexis Sanchez, Radamel Falcao, and Angel Di Maria combined. It's just like one of those subtle reminders of, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily need to spend millions and millions of dollars to find something that you might be able to find within your own house for free, essentially. Like these clubs, this just like this need to spend and spend and spend. Yeah. And it's just, sometimes it's just like... Look within first, and, and there's. I'm not saying there isn't a role for for the transfer market. Of course, it's important if you want to kick on and be, you know, a Champions League contender. But like, God, to what end? Sometimes, I mean, when you have talent within your own club, but also like, again, I don't want to harken back to the class of '92. But what if if ask yourself this question: How many of those players? I mean, certainly Phil and Gary Neville would not have made it through in the current climate. You know, Beckham obviously had that natural talent, uh, as had Giggs. Um, but maybe Lee Sharp doesn't make it. He doesn't get a run at United. You know, um, once upon a time, your academy was built not as a reason to send players out on loan or sell them again onto another club. Your academy was there to, you know, build up your own first team. And uh, certainly in the past 10 years, United have gotten away from that. Yeah, but now I will contradict myself immediately and praise a player that they just purchased for a lot of money on a transfer. What um, they have not lost since Bruno Fernandez arrived. They're unbeaten in fifteen across all competitions. Only Bayern Munich actually have a longer run uh, unbeaten in Europe's top five leagues. Um, I was reading this at WhoScored dot com. They kind of did a profile because he just registered a uh, like a nine point one two rating in their win over Brighton. Um, And they said, without the restriction of minimum appearances, Fernandez is now the highest who scored rated player in the Premier League this season, an average rating of 7.91 ahead of Manchester City's Kevin De Bruyne. He has been, I mean, he has, he has changed the complexion of this season. And you wonder now about this, this duo of him and Pogba in the midfield. And if it's suddenly, if Pogba stays, if he decides to stay, um, if we're now looking at one of the more fearsome midfield combinations in the league, if those two can continue to play together the way they've been playing. Yeah. And, and the question is now for United is to seize on this. Does it now become imperative that Paul Pogba stays? There certainly was a point where they were open to getting rid. I think COVID has changed that landscape. I think his, his relationship with, with Fernandez and and the look at that United team over the last few weeks certainly has, um, is it now imperative to, to to change that situation that Pogba signs on and stays at the club? Um, you have to look at what's behind him. Matic has been playing excellently. Yeah. Uh, and But you're conscious of his age. So you might want Matic going into next season. Is McTominay a suitable understudy? Or do you need to strengthen the bench to have somebody to come in to give Matic relief 
as he's going to have a workload over the next season? Or, or are you looking to upgrade from Matic and McTominay? Centre-back, Andrew, will it come to the point where they think that mm, if we really want to be the top side that we are, do we move on from Harry Maguire? Oof. Do we move? Yeah. That well, to me. That, uh, I, I, I think United are, are quite close to being a really good side. And, I'm, and I think it's centre-back and one of the full-back positions uh, that's occupied by Luke Shaw may be something that they want to look at. Um, and their goalkeeper as well. What's the position there? Uh, and finally, is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer the man to take this project right now forward? I've said this before. I think a future manager of Manchester United with Greenwood, with Rashford, with, with these players, um, and Fernandes added into the mix, obviously, uh, an older player, but some manager down the line at United is going to have benefited from what Solskjaer did. It may not be Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. The, um, we'll move on in a sec, but the, the goalkeeper situation is an interesting one, JJ, with Dean Henderson being Manchester United property out on loan right now. Like, is he is he good enough, you think, where they could recall him, let De Gea go, and just move forward with Henderson? Uh, Mark Ogden uh, tweeted about this a week ago. He said he doesn't feel Henderson is up there yet. And I would I would agree with that to the point you, you can't give up on De Gea yet. You, you got to work. I know it's been a, a year or more of just inconsistent performances, but I wouldn't give up on him just yet. Uh, even though I think I tweeted before that they should bring Henderson back, but I maybe that was... There's a difference between Sheffield, being Sheffield United number one and being Manchester United number one. Well, he's he might be England's number one. Yeah, well, uh, I think I think Nick Pope is ahead of him. I think okay. Nick Pope is is England's number one. Well, but right now, if, if, if Jordan Pickford, if you could get a nice sum from De Gea, I don't know that you would, but if you can, I would do it, and I and I would repurpose, I would reallocate that money to an area of need somewhere else in the squad, and I would say, okay, let's see if Dean Henderson can do it for us. The ship has probably sailed on 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 getting him to uh, Real Madrid. Remember the fax machine broke there three seasons ago, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You're right. I, I don't know who the suitors will be for him. But uh, let's see quickly now. JJ Leicester City appearing to be in some kind of free fall. Um, mm. They've taken just 13 points from their last 36 since the since um, we switched from 2019 to 2020. I, how do they get this back on track? Because it, it's not too late. You know they are still in a top four position, but man, this is—it's getting away from them quickly. And there's a bunch of teams that are nipping at their heels. I wonder. I wonder, Andrew, is it possible for? I think a partner with Vardy up front, and is it possible for Rogers to be a bit more direct? Like they do seem to they—they've settled into a, a Rogers, a Rogersian style pattern where I've just made that up. I saw it at Liverpool as well, where they just kind of, they lose that edge where the ball isn't moved advanced. Um, it feels as if the ball doesn't get to the front men quickly enough. Now, to give Everton their due, they put in another good, I know they conceded, but they put in another good compact Ancelotti performance and were even scored a lovely goal. Richarlison's goal was a beautiful move. Um, I, I, I think against maybe, maybe, I should give Everton the credit here. They were, you know, they were very well organized. They were compact, and it, it was it was hard for Leicester to play through them. I just wonder, watching Leicester sometimes, if not to sound too old school football man, but can we get it forward quicker? Can we move the ball quicker? Um, but they're in a funk. They're in a serious funk. And uh, from what I can see on Twitter, a lot of their fans 
I mean, with the run that they've come in, it's hard to see them getting out of it. Yeah, one note on Everton. Um, we've been hard, I think, on Michael Keane at times, but he's been really good. Uh, he's been so much better. Yeah, it, it's it it's unbelievable. Ancelotti just knowing, you know, being a, a a player that understood how to defend, being a manager that knew how to set up teams. Andrew Michael Keane looks like a different player. Yeah, he's been huge for uh, for Everton. Uh, a couple other quick ones: Arsenal. Um, I think they placed what is probably the final nail in Norwich's coffin. Aubameyang, two more goals for the Gunners. God, they better figure out his new contract. He was, he's talking about it a little bit afterwards, said his focus is still on just finishing out this season, and then you know they'll go from there. But you know he's, he's 31. I wonder if that, if that complicates things where he just – he may just not want – like he might see that – how many chances does he have left really for any kind of Champions League glory if that is – or even – Premier League glory. Like Arsenal may be getting better, but I don't know if anybody views them as a team next year or even the year after they're going to contend for a league title or a European title. It may not even be whether or not he likes being there, likes his teammates, likes the manager. It might might just be, I don't, as much as I love this place, I don't know that I can achieve what I want to achieve here. There may be nothing Arsenal can say or do, even financially, that could get him to stay. I agree with you. And it's such a He's been so good for them right right from the get-go, exactly what they've needed. And Andrew, he he may very well look at this situation in the way you've described it and said, that's it for me. I've got to go. I've got to, you know, because how long can he stay in this form into deep into his 30s? I mean, if he stays fit, of course he can, but there's bound to be a big team that will want him. And it looks like Arsenal will lose. I mean, as long as it's not a rival. They can't let him go within the Premier League. They can't. No. no. That would be one blow too many for troops and the guys. <laughs> Let's see. I don't really have anything else on the Premier League if you're ready to move on. Um, not that not that I can think of. No, we should move okay. on. Uh, quickly now in La Liga, um, we're doing this while Real Madrid are playing. It's nil-nil in the 77th as we're doing this right now for Real Madrid against Hetafe. Uh, but Barcelona are... They are making a bit of a mess of this restart. Um, so they draw again against Atletico Madrid. And Kike Setien, after the, after the match, said something um, that was pretty jaw-dropping in regard to Antoine Griezmann, who came on as a sub and played just two minutes against his former club, a game that you know probably meant a ton to him. Um, he said, it's difficult to put Griezmann on without destabilizing the team. Wow. And so during um, so then during that match that finished 2-2, Griezmann's brother, Theo, tweeted, I feel like crying, seriously. And then he added later two minutes in reference to the amount of time his brother had played. And then Griezmann's father, Elaine, went on Instagram in reference to Setien's comments about Griezmann destabilizing the team. He said, in order to apologize, you first need the keys of the lorry. And that is not the case because he is simply a passenger. Um. Both of those messages from Griezmann's brother and father were deleted, by the way, but they did save them. Oh, they, they live forever. Of course. Uh, it's interesting. I was reading Sid Lowe today and, um, you know, Sentien looks like he's he's finished. There, <laughs> There's no way out. He's trying to speak through his emissary. <laughs> he's like He's like a mafia don that cannot give direct orders. It must be done through a middleman. To protect himself, can he? In all of his press conferences, please be like the Maurizio Sarri one when uh, 
<laughs> who was it? Sorry's guy next to him speaking for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Um, and now we're seeing that Messi and and a number of the players are ignoring the coach that he's sending to tell them what to do. Uh, it's a mess. But but Sid Lowe uh, pointed out in his piece, uh, I think it was yesterday. It's really good. Uh, what he said was these problems. They are completely. They predate Sentien. Um, one of the things he talks about how is this is an aging side with Alaba, Rakitic, Messi, you know, guys all into their thirties now, Suarez, and how Barcelona have kind of been scrabbling around for a solution since 2017, and Neymar leaving threw them into more flux. I mean, they've tried to get him back since, but couldn't make it work. And how Neymar not being able to ascend into that zone as he would, because Neymar would be in a, at his peak, is in his peak years now, while the elder statesmen are moving a little bit towards over the hill. And it would have been this perfect transition and Neymar going through everything into flux and that they've been floundering around, you know, signing Coutinho, signing Griezmann. Like another piece worth reading is our friend Dermot Corrigan, uh, Dermot who appears on this podcast regularly. Dermot outlined the money they've spent, Andrew, over the past few years, say from, I think, 2016 onwards. It's huge. It's it's ginormous on players that have not worked out. Like, how can you outlay that money on Usman Dembele? Failure. How can you outlay, outlay that money on, on Griezmann? Absolute failure. Coutinho, failure. Like the way the club has been run now, they're flailing around. Now they've got young players coming up who are unfortunately not old enough to kind of step in and help this team right now. Or aren't maybe they are old enough? Well, maybe it's time I mean, to change. Ansu Fati is only seventeen, right? But yeah. uh, you know this team is rudderless right now, um, and it's incredible their decline in the la- in the past few years. I really would urge you to read uh, Sid Lowe's piece. It's very very good. Um, it w- there's one paragraph that stood out for me um, Setien stepped into the middle this is talking about him taking the job like Andrew he wasn't Barcelona's first choice apparently Xavi, Koeman and Pochettino said no to the job Setien stepped in he had seen what Valverde did soon perhaps he saw why Valverde did it fault lines open easily at Barcelona widened by the pressure that surrounds everyone at Celta Vigo, footage showed Messi, Suarez and Rakitic apparently ignoring Setien's assistant, Eder Sarabia. Reports alleged discussions in the dressing room. On Monday night, the president visited Setien's house. That's good. Yeah. And apparently the manager said, I wasn't an easy player to handle either. I have to free my conscience. This, this, is, uh, this is meltdown of Barcelona. It's interesting that a team so great with a player like Messi, who's so great, could be perhaps such an undesirable job for world-class managers. I, th- I think the problems at board level, the, the weirdness of the squad, you know, because you've still got the remains of the Pep experiment, and then you've got all these expensive failures thrown into the midst of it. You know, it's it's... It's weird. Like, like I even said it when they, um, oh, he's, why am I blanking on his name, right? The Chilean midfielder. Even when they, you know, they, they splat, Arturo Vidal. Arturo Vidal? Yeah, sorry. Why did I blank? When, when they bought Vidal, I just thought, why? This, it just, just didn't, 
it didn't strike me as as not that he's not a good player, but it just didn't strike me as a as a Barcelona move. And and look look at the way they scrabbled around for a for a striker, you know, and ended up with with Braithwaite. I mean, they couldn't they couldn't get uh, two uh, two transfer windows ago. They couldn't convince Odin Agallo to join them. Like it's just it's just they're in such a weird spot right now. Yeah, it's very strange. Uh, by the way, from Real Madrid, um, worth noting, Ashraf Hakimi is leaving them. He's been on loan at Borussia Dortmund the last two seasons, but he's leaving uh, Real Madrid uh, reportedly for Inter Milan. For, like, what, uh, what are Madrid doing? How can you allow this to happen? Well, he didn't want to go back there. He said he was not going to be willing to be an understudy to Danny Carvajal. And who you can understand why. I mean, God, how many goals has Hakimi scored in the Champions League? Like he, but but like any any forward thinking progressive club would say, well, he's a better player. We've loaned him out. The loan has been a rip roaring success. He's not my favorite player defensively, but going forward, he's he's outstanding. And in the modern game, wide fullbacks, all that. Why would you not just sign up for that? Get him back and play him. I guess, and figure out the logistics later. Just Do the like, rest later. Yeah, I, I guess so. You're right because he does appear to be that good. Um, but maybe they just view him, he's not what we need right now. And so let's take this money and spend it on something that we need more than uh, a, a goal-scoring fullback. I don't know. I, I don't and know. all the while, all the while allow Inter to load up on players with the potential to perhaps be a force in the Champions League. I, I don't understand. A uh, couple other things before we close out with the mailbag, JJ. The MLS is back tournament, having a little bit of a dark cloud cast over it in the wake of FC Dallas's nine positive tests for coronavirus. And then the Columbus crew have also just had a player test positive since arriving in the Orlando bubble. Um, I was uh, I was listening to a report from Orlando and this, this talk of kind of just like this, you know, it's a, it's a major tournament, even though it's not a tournament that is, has existed before, but there's going to be a, a huge light on it here domestically. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to matter, but like the, the word that was used was eerie, just like being down there and seeing how quiet it is. And this kind of like this pall of the, the positive tests that are kind of hovering over this tournament right now. It's just like, there's an eerie feeling around it. Uh, this is supposed to, I mean, today's July 2nd. This is supposed to start in less than a week. Yes. Like, and, and some people, you know, there was this conversation of will these positive tests cause this tournament to be canceled? Um, I don't believe so. I think that this is, I think they always believed, look, we can't do this unless we are willing to handle the possibility of there being positive tests for this virus. So I think that's just like, that's just the nature of the beast right now. If you, if you're going to cancel something uh, because of positive tests that appear, then you shouldn't, you just shouldn't do it in the first place because it's a reality that's going to hit. Now, having said that, I don't know if they expected there to be nine within one club so quickly upon arrival. No, they they didn't. And um, it's interesting because Jeff Carlisle has a piece out right now, and where he's he's speaking to uh, to a player, um, and the player is quoted as saying, "We were already concerned coming into this bubble environment. Now, six positive tests within the first few days here. This well, this was prior to the Columbus Crew uh, revelation. This just adds anxiety to an already tough situation." Um, Look, it it seems to me as if there's a not just in MLS but across this country, there is a determination amongst many people to just plow ahead. So I kind of agree with you that this tournament will happen, but um, this is this is far from ideal. 
It is, and, and, it, and it especially doesn't help when you know Carlos Vela, I believe, has pulled out from from taking part in it for LAFC. I think Jonathan Dos Santos uh, has taken himself out for uh, the LA Galaxy. Ike Opara, Defender of the Year, is out, although I don't believe that's based out of any concern for coronavirus. I think he's dealing with an injury. Um, but, you know, it's it's tough. It's tough, man, that, like, as it is, this tournament was going to have a, have a hard time getting off the ground and really being a like a sustainable major tournament in the minds of fans when we've talked about how it's going to be played on training fields with no fans. And, you know, now you've got, you know, huge names in the sport that aren't going to be playing. You've got people who are worried about contracting the virus, uh, a team in FC Dallas that's already kind of been decimated by it. This is, this is going to be rough. This is going to be really rough. It's just funny that like you look at what's happened in the Premier League, Bundesliga, La Liga. I feel like there haven't, we haven't seen any of those kinds of problems um, that we were worrying about at the onset, like, oh, well, what's going to happen if a Premier League team suddenly comes down with like eight guys that contract the virus? Yeah. Up to this point, they knock on wood, that has not happened. And already, because of the nature of where the virus is at in this country, you know, like maybe we're. Am I being too dramatic, JJ, to say that maybe we're just not ready yet? No, you're not. You're not. Um, the United Kingdom, oh, Germany handled the coronavirus fairly well. The United Kingdom, not well, but at least at the time when the Premier League was starting, there was a declining amount of numbers and they felt as if maybe they'd got things under control somewhat, but it's mushrooming here in the United States. And uh, in, maybe in, we're just... In this specific place, no less. Yeah, but right. I mean, Yeah. Maybe we're not ready for it, uh, but I, I just see it uh, going ahead. I agree. Can I can I tell you who was ready for it? Who? Uh, the NWSL, Andrew. Um, well, yes and no. They did have an entire team pull out of it. They did have the, <laughs> they they did, but where was that team from, Andrew? Orlando. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Challenge Cup has uh, gone through its first week or so, or almost. Uh, through its first week and um it's been a it's been a lot of fun i have to say um it suffered or we felt it might suffer prior to its kickoff with missing some you know some fairly huge players um Kristen press uh megan rapino but a- andrew uh, from the games i've watched the standard's been really really good and it's we had an, a midweek cracker between the um the utah Ro- royals and um who oh, Houston, Houston. Dad, yeah, 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 and and I was told that the, you know people who are much more educated on NWSL. I was reading their stuff, and they were saying, "Oh, Utah will be tra- trash. They won't be that good." What an now look, Houston were three one up, and and Utah pulled it back. What an absolutely excellent game that was. Yeah, I think one thing that helps also with these tournaments. We'll see if this happens in MLS. Um, I think it helps when the the best teams come out and still look like the best teams. I think that gives you kind of this feeling of normalcy around the tournament and kind of almost yeah. helps the credibility of it. Like North Carolina, your reigning champions, you know, they've come out uh, in this tournament and gotten two wins right out of the gate. I saw Lynn Williams scored twice in the second half to kind of um, to kick them on in their 2-0 victory. So they're atop the table right now on six points. Um, it seems like every other match has ended in a draw. Uh, but I think yeah. that helps that like North Carolina looked good. So it's like, okay, well, like all is right in some ways, you know, like, okay, yeah, no, makes some sense. I know. And, 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 you know, we're forgetting, you know, Rose Lavelle is still in this tournament. When you talk yeah. about North Carolina, you got Dabinia. Dabinia is just outstanding to watch. And, and on Lynn Williams goal uh, last night, I can't remember if it was the first or the second, Andrew, she picks it up on the sideline. She is 
she turns and is effectively felled by the defender. She gets up like she literally almost bounces like a basketball and gets up and she's gone. And for her, like, like her final piece in scoring the goal, she comes right across the trailing defender. Her touch is perfect and buries it in the back of the net. I mean, if I'm uh, if I'm the US or the US Women's National Team manager, you're finding solutions there. I mean, could you imagine a front two of Lynn Williams and Alex Morgan if 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 that was something that you wanted to do? Just outstanding, absolutely outstanding. Um, but no, this this tournament has actually been really fun. Uh, but you're right. It feels as if North Carolina have been the class very easily. To, I think it's uh, tomorrow you're going to see the Utah Royals. We'll see if they actually can put uh, two results together. They're playing Sky Blue at 12.30. And, uh, no, sorry, that's Saturday, excuse me. And then the Houston Dash have the rain on Saturday at 10 p.m. So you got your early game and your late game. It's, it's, it's not a bad way to do it. There you go. Uh, let's close out on a uh, on a big mailbag here. What do you got? Um, we're going to start up at CO Soccer Pod, caught offside pod at gmail.com, and then caught offside ESPN on Instagram. Please leave us a review on iTunes as well. Uh, Robert at Sunny SoCal, Rob, a regular contributor, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, hope to hear both of your thoughts on Turner deciding to stop doing coverage of both the Champions and Europa League games. Thanks. I'm not sure how much there is to say about this. I'm presuming it was is a business decision, and now that they've forego, they they're going to forego that that next season on the on the Champions League. Um, CBS are going to be in the running. ESPN, the zone, we assume for the rights for the remainder of this Champions League, and I guess yeah. Yeah, I guess next year too. Yeah, I would. I guess I would. Would you throw NBC in in the ring for that too, or do you think that their plate is full with uh, no? With I think they'd league? like to. I think they'd love to have their uh, Premier League people here, um, here, on the Champions League. Here's one, only one comment that I have with this, really, because ultimately I don't, I don't care a ton which network has coverage. What I do care about, though, is I feel like we've, with Turner, we kind of crossed a, th- a dangerous threshold, and that is this paywall idea. Yeah. Uh, I... I believe it's really for a sport that is not. Let's let's be honest. Let's be honest with our, with each other here. The sport is not necessarily an American mainstream sport just yet. It's close, but things like this don't help. They don't help. Like, are people are the numbers so great of the people who are willing to spend money to get behind the paywall that it's worth having it? Like, I just think it's so counterproductive. And whoever has this next, I mean, I know CBS has come in. Um, for the 21-22 Champions League. Um, but like, and they're going to do it too because they're really pushing their CBS all-access paywall. So I'm sure the, major- mm. the vast majority of Champions League games for them will be, will be behind it. But man, I, I, I can't help but think, at least in this country, it has hurt the Champions League's popularity in some way. And I think it's partially why, like I feel like when I was getting into soccer, um, you know, World Cup was always king. But after that, Champions League was number one. And then I guess the Premier League would be number two. Uh, but the Champions League was so available. Uh, and so it was it was such an easy watch when, you know, when ESPN had coverage. And I feel like that there's been this, at least in this country, I, do you feel like there's been a swapping of the two, that the Premier League has overtaken the Champions League in terms of American popularity? Yeah, and because of its frequency, it's every weekend. It's It's definitely done that, Yeah, I feel. Yeah, and I stuff like this doesn't. I just think it doesn't help. 
Um, let me see. Owen O'Sullivan, what's your favorite EPL fixture of every season, not involving the teams you support? So no Liverpool, no Spurs. I'm going to go with this one. I very much look forward to the Manchester Derby. I used to love Leeds versus Manchester United. Leeds United, Manchester United was such a good uh, derby. And it really was a derby because they they hated each other so much. And the games were, to my mind, always entertaining. And back in the day, certainly not anymore. It's not fun anymore. Uh, not for me anyway. But Arsenal, Manchester United, the glory days from about 1996 to 2006 was, oh, those 10 years, so good. Wenger versus Ferguson, brilliant games. Uh, but yeah, I suppose the, the Manchester Derby, I enjoy any of the the Newcastle, Sunderland, Sunderland, Newcastle, Middlesbrough, Sunderland, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, Newcastle, Middlesbrough, whatever. I, I enjoy those as well. Yeah, I've kind of grown to really enjoy the, uh, I guess, what would be the Derby of the moment. Like Manchester City, Liverpool isn't a historical uh, fixture, but I really think that this rivalry that has developed between them over the past few years is is true and genuine. And I think I think you saw a little bit of that today in Manchester City's pride um, in coming out and playing the way that they did against Liverpool. I think they're angry about what's happened, and I think you catch like I think you catch little glimpses of what it of what this rivalry means to them. Like when you see who was it, JJ? It was Raheem Sterling and Joe Gomez, right? That got into like a full on fight in England training right after the Manchester City Liverpool match had just happened. Yeah. You know, like I, I really think that there's there's bad blood between those two right now because of like their perch atop the league. Uh so uh, to me there's something fun about that because of how real the rivalry has become. Speaking uh, of fights, did you see uh, Matt Miazga and uh Yeah. and Tom Lawrence go at it? Yeah, I did. I did see that. Um, yeah, I mean- Lawrence kind of tried to head. Well, he did headbutt him. Did. And uh, no, I, I kind of like. I know this is my American brain, but I was kind of like, "Good for Miazga. Don't take that." No, yeah. Well, no. It. I mean, I mean, it's it's good and it's bad. I mean, both were regarded. If a guy headbutts you, like I, I'm cool with someone reacting to being headbutted. Like I, oh. know, I know it's. I know it's like not serving any greater purpose because you're going to get red carded and miss time and no one wants that ultimately. But like, what are you supposed to do? (laughs) Right. Like I feel the same way about like if somebody spits on you, like I'm kind of okay with you reacting to someone doing something like that. It was a nasty weekend in the championship. You saw Mitrovic elbowing uh, the Leeds United player in Fulham's three nil defeat. Uh, Actually, I did not see that. I'm sorry. The, the game the game was barely a few minutes old and he's just cracked. I, I can't remember who the player was. Um uh, the Leeds United player with an elbow and so he's got a three match ban. It was absolutely blatant, but the referee I don't think saw it at the time. Um let's move on then to uh Teal Murphy. Is a championship more meaningful to fans of teams that used to dominate, i.e. Liverpool, or to fans that have never seen their teams win anything? Sincerely, a Buffalo Bills fan. <laughs> um, I would. I'm going to say that this. I'm such a coward. This is unanswerable. I don't. I don't know how to determine. Something like. Do you mean to tell me that this Liverpool title means more to Liverpool fans than what the title meant to Leicester City fans a few years ago? I. I can't say that. Um, 
but I also can't say that it meant more to Leicester City fans than what it means to Liverpool fans. I, I really don't know how to answer this question. It's a great question. I don't, I'm not taking anything away from it. It's really like, it caused me to think and, and get angry. I was like, this question is frustrating me. Like, I don't know what my mind thinks on this. So I, I just got angry and I kind of closed my computer and sat there. And, and But you guys had never won a Super Bowl, Bowl right? You guys had, had never won a Super Bowl. No, not until until 2017. No. Yeah. So what was it like? It was the greatest day of my life as a sports fan. You think that would feel different if Dallas went, went and win one next season? I couldn't. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I I don't know that I could tell a Cowboys fan. Like, it's hard for me to believe that it could mean more to anyone than what it meant to me that night. But could it mean different? Well, of course, of course, it's everybody absorbs these things differently, but I don't, I don't know. I feel like I just, I can't be so arrogant, I guess, as to think that like when my team won, that's the most that it could mean to anyone. Like, I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What what was your instinct on this? uh, My instinct was, was, was kind of in line with yours, uh, but more that it like say with Leicester, it was such an unbelievable surprise and shock that it was like a, a a joyous, a joyous kind of carnival atmosphere. Whereas with Liverpool, it was an emotional ending of a of a barren period. Right. Uh, but um, and as much as I I firmly believe with Liverpool fans, as much as anything, there's a sense of relief that it's finally done. Whereas with Leicester fans, it would have been just pure, pure joy. I think. Uh, yeah. it, like it's pure joy for me but a different kind of joy yeah i guess the, i guess the difference is kind of where like lester fans like they experience something that they they may never experience again you know it, it's hard for, like liverpool were they were you guys were gonna get one you know there was the sense of inevitability i know it's hard for you to see it that way but um yeah and we'd been in title we've been in a title race or two title races in the past 10 years so i suppose yeah um that's a tough question though it is we're going to round off here with uh, andrew silverman uh your thoughts on the analysis of common of english commentary for black players versus white players so um this is a a study that's been carried out by run repeat uh this is sachin akrani in the guardian breaking it down um run repeat is a danish firm and is the first aimed at understanding whether the football media talks differently about players depending on their skin tone more than 2000 statements from commentary on 80 games across the premier league serie a la liga and league 1 were analyzed run repeat ratio adjusted its numbers to account for the fact that there were 1361 comments about lighter skin players and 713 about darker skin players and found the former group more widely praised for intelligence 62.60% hard work 60% and quality 62.79% commentators are also 6.59 times more likely to talk about the power of a player if he has darker skin and 3.38 times more likely to reference his pace. The study also found that 63.33% of criticism from commentators in regards to the intelligence of a player is aimed at those with darker skin, while the figure for quality is 67.5, uh, 67.57%. It's basically saying that there's a bias towards certain 
commentaries. I get what you're saying. And modes of commentary about darker skin players than there is white skin players. Um, so, so from what I've read prior to this, this, the current kind of, um, awakening of racial bias that's happened in the, in the past couple of months prior to this, I've read a lot of stuff by a lot of, um, African-American writers, uh, sports journalists about, and, and, and seen some stuff from, from English journalists too, about how commentators talk about black players in the NFL and black players in football. Now, can I say I was always aware that these things were consistently said about black players, like the pace and the power, the athleticism is talked up way more than the skill or the intelligence part. Can I say I always noticed that? No, but I have noticed this. There's, this is no shock to many people in the black community. Put it that way. Yeah, this, and I think it's existed in in this country too. I mean, you mentioned American football, like in the NBA. I feel like there's references to this often uh, as being the case. So this is not the idea of this existing is not sadly is not shocking. Yeah, and it's. You know, it's not the thing is that a, a lot of it is is like kind of a, just a subconscious thing. Um, I think some of it, in some cases, when I hear it, it's kind of just lazy tropes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that's it. I think that's a good way of putting it. And and uh, you know, in, in lieu of research, I'm going to assume that the Jamaican right winger is very very quick. He's very athletic but he doesn't track back much. You know, yeah. these things have built up in football for years. We've we spoken to John Barnes about this um, in the 70s and 80s. There was, English teams wouldn't sign black players because of perception that they wouldn't like the cold. Oh yeah, yeah. A perception that they wouldn't work hard. You know, these things have been in the game for a long, long time, both conscious and subconscious. Yeah. Well, hopefully this is that moment in time that we've been waiting for where many of those stereotypes can be shattered. Um, you know, cause I think, I feel like a new light is kind of just being cast on this and, and hopefully people have just kind of like awoken to the fact that these things are just untrue and, um, and it's best to start weeding them out of the sport. For sure. And, um, maybe this report, you know, like I said, won't be a huge surprise to many in the black community, but maybe we'll we'll urge uh, commentators of a of of different race to to think about what they're saying a bit more. Um, yeah, I would agree. So that just about wraps it up. There were two other things before we leave that I just wanted to mention. The first one being JJ that it has gone final uh, at the Bernabeu. Real Madrid have won one nil. Oh. Sergio Ramos scores on, on a penalty in the 79th minute. Uh, and so now I believe the gap between Real Madrid and Barcelona is four points plus uh, Real Madrid have the tiebreaker, um, which and they will. There's obviously, a, as we always remind people, it's not goal difference in La Liga. It's head to head. So Real Madrid have that tiebreaker. There's nothing Barcelona can do to overturn that. So I'm not going to go so far as to say that this is over. We said that there would be twists and turns. The first twist and turn happened already with Real Madrid moving ahead of Barcelona. Um who knows? Maybe there's another one still to come, but oh, it does not feel good right now. If you're a Barcelona fan, uh, it's hard to envision. With 33 games played, it's it's tough to see Real Madrid losing a four point lead at the top of the table. So just uh, I just wanted to make sure we got that in before the end of the pod. 
And one other thing, JJ, for all the people out there that repeatedly tell us, and we also perpetuate it at times, uh, for all the people that say the FA Cup is dead, no one cares about it anymore, the big clubs don't care. Well, we just are now looking at a semifinal of four big clubs, exclusively big clubs. Um, so, you know, maybe some of the shine is off of this competition from past years, but I don't know if I'm quite in the place where I can say no one cares about it anymore uh, if it is still big teams that are are winning this competition. If they were marching out, you know, like nonsense teams of youth team players and, and you know, going out early, then I would say, yeah, the this is not a thing anymore. But you're starting to see that there are still teams that want to win this thing. Of course, absolutely. And uh, congratulations to Manchester City, who will be FA Cup champions. Wow. Just like that, huh? Yep. And there you go. I think so. Uh, that's about That's about all I got. For you my friend well um happy fourth of july andrew yeah same to you i hope you celebrate safely um from a uh a covid standpoint and a fireworks standpoint both will be accounted for andrew there will be masks and i will have a ballistics expert with me if there are any fireworks i have one on retainer as well at all times well, hey, this was fun, man. Yeah, seriously, enjoy your uh, your 4th of July to you, to everybody out there listening as well. And to you, I say... Check it later, fun boy. See ya. Take care, man. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast.